You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast, from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, SpyCast brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns about SpyCast, or if you want to suggest someone who might be a good future guest, email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Also, if you like what you hear, and even if you don't, please take a minute to review us on iTunes or whatever platform you might be listening. We're always looking for ways to make SpyCast better, and you can help. We're joined today by Gordon Carrera, who has been a security correspondent for BBC News since 2004, and we reported from across the United States, Asia, Africa, and the Middle East. He's the author of Cyber Spies, The Secret History of Surveillance, Hacking, and Digital Espionage, The Art of Betrayal, The Secret History of MI6, and Shopping for Bombs, Nuclear Proliferation, Global Insecurity, and the Rise and Fall of the AQ Khan Network. His newest book is Russians Among Us, Sleeper Cells, Ghost Stories, and the Hunt for Putin Spies. Welcome, Gordon. Thank you for taking the time to talk to us here at SpyCast. Thank you very much for having me here. So the, the story at the heart of this book, I mean, we, we, we have an exhibit on it here at the mm. museum, so it's not new. 10 Russian illegals and their arrest in 2010. Uh, it's a 10-year-old story mm. now for the FBI is going on a 20-plus-year-old story. So now, why is now the time to write this book, and why are you uniquely qualified to do so? <laughs> Not sure if I'm uniquely qualified, but I'll try and tell you why. Um, so one of the things I found interesting is when this spy swap happened in 2010, I was covering it as a journalist, and I remember just thinking it was a bit kind of odd, it felt like a kind of Cold War throwback, and that's how it was treated. And actually, that was deliberately how it was treated um, by the U.S. administration at the time. Um, and it's actually only 10 years down the line now that I think you can see it in a slightly different way, because at the time, we thought Russian spying, this was all a bit Cold War in the past. Now, of course, it's very much in the news, whether it's in election interference in the U.S., whether it's the kind of poisonings in the U.K., and it suddenly struck me that it was very interesting to go back to that moment and see what it illuminated about the way in which Russian espionage had changed since the end of the Cold War. And I felt you could tell that story by looking from starting in 91, looking at this as a kind of pivot point in Russian espionage, which illuminated how it was changing, and then take it through to the present day. Why me? Well, um, as a, uh, you know, I don't think it has to be uniquely me, but I've been fascinated by this subject. I'd written about 
MI6 and Russia and a lot of the espionage cases in the Cold War. And I'd always wanted to kind of take it that bit further. And I'd covered some of the events like um, the poisoning of Alexander Litvinenko in London and um, more recently the Skripal affair. And I just felt that there was a way of bringing this story together using sources in London, in Moscow and here in the US and just bringing all those different elements together to kind of create, right. to, to tell that story. Well, as a historian, I have no problem with you waiting 10 years to write. Let it <laughs> marinate a little bit. Yeah. A little bit. In, uh, 20, 30 years is even better, but yeah, I have no problem with you waiting. There's an extraordinary database uh, on the FBI website from Operation Ghost Stories. Mm-hmm. I mean, they, unprecedented, we were chatting before we started, the fact that they just... I mean, this is a huge success story for them. So they're really basking in the glory <laughs> of this. And you can go online and watch videos mm-hmm. and look at photos and documents and everything else. What besides that, you hinted at already, but what besides the FBI documents did you use to put this together? So it was an interesting mix because it is a great collection. There's a lot of material there. I was able to also speak to some of the FBI agents who'd been directly involved in the investigation, able to interview them, and some of them spoke on the record, some of those uh, people about the investigation, which was able to really kind of take the documents and flesh out that story. But I also was able to talk to a kind of wider range of sources within the intelligence communities in the US, UK and Russia to try and piece together the wider intelligence picture of what was happening. Some of the wider spy games and counterintelligence battles were going on. I was also able to contact some of the illegals themselves. Um, none of them wanted to talk that much, it's fair to say. Um, you know, they, they've obvious reasons for that. They are Russian intelligence officers. But actually, some of them were able to give me some quotes, and I talked to some uh, in different ways. So actually, piecing that together, it was a question of piecing together bits and pieces. And some bits of the story, yeah, they were there on the documents. But other bits, you know, I spent ages trying to piece together from as many different people as I could speak to to try and bring all the different elements together. Well, let's go wide and then deep at the same mm. time. Outside of the story that we're going to talk about a little later, let's look at kind of th- the big picture here. So the United States with the CIA, we really have kind of two kinds of people we send overseas. Those were with official cover, you know, the second deputy agricultural attache at the embassy, minister of shrubberies, and then what we call NOX, non-official mm-hmm. cover. You're overseas as a business person or a grad student or whatever. The Russians have this also. Uh, all their embassies are full of spooks, and they've got people running around as as or non-official cover, but they take it a step further. You know, they don't have people pretending to be American business people. They don't have people pretending, like we have, right? We send people over as Americans or maybe mm-hmm. Canadians. The sleeper program, the illegal program, is a much different animal. And if we, you know, have a couple months where you go down to the farm and learn how to be an operations officer, and maybe you get sent to some far-off place that's not all that important right away or... Well, in the case of Moscow in the 80s, you got sent right to Moscow as a pipeliner. We're talking years and years and years of prep work for some of these illegals. I I still find this mesmerizing that the Russians do this. And it tells you something about Russian intelligence, that they are willing to play the long game. To invest not just years, but decades building someone's cover to go deep into another society and to no longer be Russian, but to become American or maybe Canadian. 
uh, and that's what they did. It's something also which is, I mean, they they started using these Ill- illegals way back, you know, um, um, for decades ago, and they were very successful in the kind of 30s and 40s, stealing atomic secrets, Cambridge spies in England. So they have this great pedigree and this great reputation in Russia, which has led them to continue to invest in this program, where you take often quite young people and you pluck them out maybe from university and you then put them through maybe three or four years of training in Moscow uh, really intensive not just language training but cultural training to adopt a different nationality to become someone else you give them the identity often of a dead child um, who's been tombstone to use the language they're kind of the identity has been taken maybe from a graveyard and then you send them somewhere to build their cover and what I found amazing with some of these illegals, they would be trained for three or four years, then they would have pretty much a decade still to build their cover before they even reached the, the main target, the United States. So you're talking about years of investment to build that kind of cover and to send them into the West. Uh, and it, it's remarkable. And, and you're right, the, there's the NOT program, there's what the UK call natural cover, which 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 sends people over for short term often right. on, on as a business assignment, uh, but you know, and one of the reasons is it'd be quite hard to say to someone who was you know at the farm or you know at the, at the UK training for MI6 to say, yeah, we're going to send you to Vladivostok for twenty years to become <laughs> to, to go live as a you know because they live in Russia. That's kind of a big ask. Yeah, never mind your nice house in Southern California. Yeah. You're going to go freeze your ass off. For yeah, you. for a long time. Well, I mean, that's a that's one of the advantages of guess of having and not quite first world country in the sense of Russia where you can pull, pluck somebody from Siberia and say we're going to send you off to live in New York yeah I mean of course the fear of court that they always have was going native you know mm-hmm. becoming too I mean you mentioned Jack Barsky in the mm-hmm. book and Jack's a friend of ours um, and he went native essentially yeah. he liked it so much here he fell in love he had a kid he didn't want to go back that he didn't yeah you know, and that's one of the things they always have to be worried about. I mean, Rudolf Abel is a great example of this. Also, another you know yeah. illegal, where they didn't give him any real jobs after he returned. They didn't trust it. Yeah, yeah. they didn't trust that he yeah. hadn't become too American. And I think, and and, and another one is uh, Colonel Melody, Gordon Lonsdale, who comes back to to Russia having been illegal in the UK. And he's actually been changed by his experience in the West, where he suddenly says, ah, you know, the way you run your factories, it's crazy. We could do that. You know, yeah. they do it much better in the West. And so there was always this fear with the illegals program that, that the people would like it just a bit too much in the West and would adopt it. So they actually went through pretty rigorous testing to check your um, principles and to check your loyalty to the to the motherland it was considered, you know, hugely important. They do quite a lot of monitoring uh, trial runs, see how you react in certain situations, and yeah, they, there was always that fear that they would go native. And you can actually see it with some of the illegals who came over. That 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 Moscow Center was sometimes saying, you know, we we're not so happy with you wanting to buy a house in the U.S. because because it looks like you might be just buying into the American dream a little bit too much and that suburban lifestyle. So there's always that tension. Well, and I think that you you see. If this sounds familiar to everybody, right, you know, like, oh, I saw that on The Americans. Yeah. Well, that TV show is inspired by this case that we're talking about today. And it, they do a very good job in demonstrating this. And one of the things that makes the illegal program unique in many respects, especially for these long-term illegals, was they did send them over as couples. Yeah. Right? The idea behind, um, you know, where Barsky gets into trouble is he actually falls in love with someone who's not a Russian spy. Yeah. Right? And so he doesn't want to go back. In this case, you're sent over with someone that hopefully 
you have a good relationship yeah. with and that you can work with and that you don't have to lie to when you go out in the middle of the night because they know exactly what you're doing and they can do the burden yourself. You know, they, they work together better. And that's part of this interesting concept behind this. Absolutely. They, they realize that it was that risk there. If you fall in love, you know, you've either got to hide your real identity from them or you've got to tell them. And what are the risks of that? So they did start sending them out as couples. Sometimes those were manufactured couples right. where they put two, two people together and said, you, we, we think you're both going to be good as illegals go out. Interestingly enough, with one of the cases I looked at, they, they were actually a couple at university who were both selected and considered good enough. And so were sent out together as a couple. It still raises questions about children and things like that and what you tell them and when, which is you know one of the interesting aspects of the case. But certainly, yeah, relationships and the human aspect is certainly fundamental to getting that illegals program right and as you said with Jack Barsky when it potentially goes wrong for them because of those those very human emotions and relationships well that's the thing is like this isn't an I mean it's hard for me to feel sympathetic for Russian spies mm -hmm. right but this is an insanely difficult job it's not just you have to stay covert and keep from getting caught there's very little contact with home they're sending people over in their early 20s which means their parents are still relatively young they have brothers and sisters they have friends they're never going to see them again maybe or if not for decades later they can't contact they can't write letters mm -hmm. unless it's like secret writing yeah. and it's sent through other things and several of these illegals who came over had parents die and mm -hmm. family members die they couldn't go to the funeral had a kid die yeah and couldn't go back to the funeral and and, and uh, it was interesting one of them says one of the illegals says um that they loved their job it was, but the price that was paid was for the generation above and the generation below, for their parents who had to basically say goodbye to them. And I think there was a cover story they were going to Australia as translators or something like that. And for their children who ultimately found out that they'd been living a lie. Right. So for, the, for, for them, the illegals, there's the, the, the thrill and the excitement. But those around them certainly paid a price, I think. That's true. Well, let's talk about our, our friends to the north because Canada becomes mm. just a the launching pad yeah. for this. And, and I'm sure that's probably changed a little bit since 9-11. You know, things have been much more difficult. Well, actually, we'll talk about that in a little bit. Canada um, yeah. was just, wow. Perfect. Right, I mean, we're, we're building a wall along, the ball should have been in the northern part. <laughs> if you wanted to keep out the illegals, right, that's yeah. exactly right. If you wanted to keep out illegals. Keep out the dangerous illegals, <laughs> they would have been building a wall to the north. It's yeah. the dangerous Canadians, but sorry, Canada. Um, but yeah, it, Canada was the perfect launch pad for illegals. Um, uh, people could, m and many illegals, right back actually, again, Gordon Lonsdale, kind of Melody back in the 50s came first to Canada and then into New York and then to London. Um, uh, it's been a place where you could almost ready yourself for going for what the KGB used to call the main enemy, the, the, you know, the target, the United States, and kind of assimilate yourself and build your identity and build your cover. The document checks were lighter, the surveillance was lighter, um, uh, so it was the perfect place to set up, which, you know, one of the illegal couples I looked at certainly, you know, took advantage of and spent, you know, many years in, in Canada. You know, one of them, you know, selling diapers at one point, you know, after, you know, going there at, at the end of the Cold War and then having to live through that turbulent period of the 90s. But but interestingly enough, keeping going. Well, it's a, it's a dual advantage in that it gives you practice, but at the same time develops a backstory. Yeah. Right. You can talk about your decade in Canada and Toronto and yeah. watching the Maple Leafs and becoming much more Western. Yeah, and you can have a slightly funny accent. Right, a little <laughs> you know, accent, you can have a you're bit watching of Western accent, TV, yeah. you're watching yeah. movies, all those other things. So you talked about this has been around for a while, and, and we all kind of look at the fall of the Soviet Union as one of these kind of monumental mm -hmm. moments of, of the 
the you know, the entire 1900s, the 20th century. Um, and and a lot of people pointed to CIA and said, "Boy, and my six and everybody else," mm. and said, "Boy, did you miss that coming?" Um, most people, even in the Soviet Union, miss that coming, right? So we can talk about how fair that is or not. Yeah. But it certainly caught the illegals off guard because they were not in a position to know what was going on inside their own country. And you can imagine if you're if you've been overseas for a decade working for your government, and then you find out your government has collapsed, yeah. or there's a coup, or there's all of a sudden all these changes taking place. That had to have been a you know a slap across the face, and then of course the question is, I'm I am I still who am I working yeah. for? Right, the yeah. KGB is gone, Soviet Union's gone. I mean, maybe if I'm Russian, I'm still working for Russia. Yeah, but exactly. the KGB was made up of Lithuanians and Kazakh, yeah. Kazakhs yeah. and all these other ones that all of a sudden had a whole other country now. And it was certainly traumatic. And you know, one of the couples that I looked at, um, you know, go by the name Donald Heathfield and Anne Foley, were. You know, they they talk about having, you know, watching the flag of the Soviet Union descend at the end of 1991 and crying. They're sitting in a kind of hotel room in, in Buffalo and they're crying because they're kind of thinking we've invested our life. We've, you know, sworn an oath um, um, to serve this country. And actually that country's gone. But and it's thought that quite a f- well, some illegals may have used that moment of the end of the Soviet Union to just melt away. And if you like, keep their keep their new identities and forget their old. But I found it interesting, actually, with, with, with that couple and with others, the extent to which a loyalty to Russia became the defining thing rather than communism. And you kind of makes you wonder, actually, when you go back to that period, actually, how much of it was always actually about Russia and serving Russia rather than actually about the communist ideal. And certainly they found it quite easy to, even as the political system changed, to feel that their loyalty was serving the motherland rather than serving the the communist ideal well as someone who has been arguing for years and is part of the camp that says ideology had very little to do with the cold war yeah. i can understand that yeah um what's interesting and this shouldn't be interesting in hindsight it makes a ton of sense but at the time no one probably saw it coming was that russia um instead of kind of letting this program fall away because you know the new world order and we're all mm. happy with each other and Boris Yeltsin and Clinton are making jokes and everything else, decided to double down yeah. on the legal program. And it makes sense if you think about it, right? The idea is the world is now a crazy place, yeah. right? The, 19, the Wild West of the 1990s, where we in the United States are having conversations about should we disband the CIA, but we won. We're the, you know, we know what's going on around the world. The Russians are like, we're half the size we were a year ago. Literally, literally yeah. half, less than half the size we were a year ago. Our power is gone. Yes, we still have nuclear weapons, but now we need to know more than we ever have before, possibly, what the hell is going on in the rest of the world. That's absolutely right. That uh, From the Russian perspective, they were on the back foot. Uh, they felt humiliated. Yes, they, 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 they were down, but they actually felt they needed the intelligence even more. They, the, the desire to know what was going on, what the risks were, had, had increased, and the appetite had increased. And you saw the diplomatic... Uh, number of officers under diplomatic cover go down from the SVR, which took over from the KGB's um, um, uh, uh, f- foreign spying arm. Uh, um, but it's replaced by actually more focus on illegals because they, they realize actually there's now new opportunities for illegals because there's more opportunities for travel, for business. People are moving back and forth in different ways. And therefore, you've got more avenues to, to, to push those illegals out. So if anything, there's, a, there's, there's an increased emphasis on illegals. And certainly, of course, the counterpart to that is on the Western side, 
there's a sense where well, we won. Russia's going to end up as a liberal democracy. It kind of drops down the agenda really, really fast, apart from a very few places in the kind of Russia house of the CIA and other places who are kind of keep, keep going with the fight. But at the kind of broader sense of the intelligence community and the policy community, you see, you see the attention on Russia fades while the Russians remain very focused on right. the West. So there's an imbalance there. And that's even true with the spy catchers. Yeah. Where already, you know, I think people don't quite necessarily understand the nuance behind, there is a difference between counterintelligence and counterespionage. Mm. The difference between hunting down our people yeah. who have decided to spy for another country, arresting the Americans, spying for China, whomever, and then stopping professional intelligence officers from coming to the United States. And we still were hunting our own people but the whole idea of professionals coming in from the SVR or other things like that took somewhat of a back seat. And even if the FBI had wanted to, the budget cuts in the 90s mm -hmm. and everything really caused some serious problems there. But you and I know, and you mentioned this in your book and you talk about it several times, that the best way to catch spies is not necessarily with a counterintelligence unit working like the FBI and law enforcement. It's to infiltrate their side yeah. and figure out their secrets. And of course, we know they did this to us with Ames and Hans and everybody else. But some people might find in your book for the first time reading some in-depth stories about how effective we were yeah. at this as well, both CIA and MI6. Yeah, I think that's right. And um, it, it certainly often it's hidden that the importance of counterintelligence for obvious reasons. You're studying your opponent. You don't want to talk about it. But uh, when it comes to things like um, the capture of, of Ames in 1994, uh, you know, a, a lot of the narratives at the time focused on the detective work, and certainly there was a lot of detective work, but there were also, um, you know, there were also defectors and spies and agents who provided critical intelligence as part of this counterintelligence game. But of course, at the time, you have to hide that. So often that counterintelligence narrative is right. is hidden deliberately um, because there's agents still in place or who are being protected. But, um, you know, one of the things you understand is that it, it, is that it's very rare for um, a foreign intelligence agent to be caught purely through detective work without some role for a pe from a penetration of that foreign service. Right, it's almost like offensive counterintelligence. Just, yeah, you yeah. penetrate the foreign service to find out who they're running. Exactly. And, the and, it's, and it's the kind of, it's that bit of, um, of the spy world which sounds very, um, it almost sounds arcane and the people who are in it are in this little world in which they're constantly trying to work out how to how to develop these games and penetrate the other side. And it can sound very kind of, you know, um, inward looking. But actually, one of the things you understand is without that, you're at risk of having all your secrets exposed. Right. And, and, it's, and it is a, a real risk. So counterintelligence is an important discipline, I think I learned. Well, but I mean, the, the kind of the ringmaster of the Cambridge Five, or at least the most famous of all of them, Kim Philby, that's where he did his most damage. Yeah. Right? It wasn't passing along secrets like the others who work with the foreign ministry, others. It was passing along who we had working for us. Yeah. It was getting our people burned. Yeah. And that's where he did his huge amount of damage in messing up every single operation and every yeah. single time we tried to recruit somebody yeah. by telling them. And there's there's several um, now Russian, former Soviet intelligence officers uh, that we recruited that helped us along the mm. way. In fact, two of them at the same time, but they didn't know about each other. Um, if you want to talk a little bit about them, because they really lead into this story. Yeah, I think one of the ones I... I found most interesting was this case of um, Zaporozhsky, who is uh, codenamed uh, Max. And uh, he was one of those who um, was able to supply details which helped lead to Ames. And 
uh, was uh, then soon afterwards. And, and again, I think he's he's a very interesting figure because not that much has been written about him. Uh, and yet he looks, when you look back, he was clearly very important. Um, and almost the less that's written about someone, sometimes that tells you to, to look more closely. Um, but ends up actually being um, arrested um, 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 when he goes back uh, to Moscow and is one of those swapped then in, in 2010 for the illegals. So he's certainly one of the, the, the most interesting figures in this drama. And then uh, uh, there are others, you know, there's this Sergei Skripal, who the you know, MI6 recruit, uh, as an as an asset inside the GRU and who's very valuable in that period in the 90s as well but also I think critically and one of the things I look at the book is is the recruitment of Alexander Pataev who is a, a SVR officer who was in New York um, with Line N which supports the illegals director at S which is, runs the illegals right I mean he, he was in a unique position because he knew who they all were exactly like he, he was kind of their guy he, yeah. he, he, he gets recruited by um, as I kind of talk about I think for the first time in a lot of detail in the book which hasn't come out before about by the FBI in New York when he's there um, at the uh, Russian mission to the UN but then uh, agrees to kind of stay as an agent in place and goes back to Moscow and there is in this amazing position in Directorate S which runs the illegals in the department which runs the illegals in the Americas and so is able to kind of feed back this intelligence uh, over a decade uh, even slightly more about what the what illegals are coming into the United States, and it just means that right from the start, the FBI is able to have a handle on the illegals program and what they're up to, and monitor them and and run it as a counterintelligence operation. So run it in a way to feel they have enough control to be able to monitor, watch, and learn about what the SVR is up to. Well, and that's something. I mean, the FBI likes to slow play investigation like that the cia does this even more and this is a wonderful opportunity a luxury because they they always knew what was happening right they knew about meats as quickly as the actual agents did they they understood where dead drops would be they didn't have to follow people because they knew where they were going exactly they could set up ahead of time yeah stake out a a meeting at a you know a a subway or railroad station they they could be there they wouldn't have to follow the agent there and risk being spotted on the way they could just be there because they had they were inside the communications they had an agent in place in moscow and it gave them that sense of control which meant that you knew you weren't necessarily uh, you didn't have to worry about potentially some great loss of intelligence if an agent was recruited in, in Washington who would give away secrets because you knew what they were doing. And it meant they could feel confident watching uh, in, in this operation called Ghost Stories for, for a full decade. And this is, I mean, for anyone listening who's an operations officer or wants to be, this is the nightmare scenario, <laughs> yeah. right? No matter how good you are at mm. surveillance detection runs, no matter how good you are at going black, or, or you're, you're toast yeah. in this circumstance. Uh, you just—it's impossible to do your jobs effectively, and that turned out to be the case. And again, you can go on the FBI's website and watch the videos of these meets and these conversations and these dead drops and everything else. Which, I mean, it was important because this is a time before modern technology really comes mm-hmm. on the scene. Today, you've got biometrics, you've got facial recognition software, you've got electronic databases. This is a time and when there were no you know a birth certificate you could forge relatively easily Mm -hmm. this is certainly a time before you needed to create digital backstories with Mm -hmm. social media so this was the last kind of big hurrah of the pre-internet age of 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 sleepers or illegals and without this insight 
they could have potentially done some serious damage. And, and that was one of the um, challenges with, with this story and with this case is to think, well, some people said, well, did it all matter given that they were under control? And But the, the, the point is, if they hadn't been under control, yeah. what damage could they have done? And I think it could have been significant because I think these are, if you look at the way they could have put down roots, they could have built up networks of people, they could have talent spotted, you know, people for later recruitment. They could have, if you like, they were looking at places like universities. And I found that very interesting. So they were looking at setting up rings at places like Columbia or maybe GWU in Washington. And part of the point was that if you look back in history, that's kind of what the Cambridge spies did in the UK in the 30s. They they took a group of people who were actually basically just students who had just graduated from Cambridge or were just there. They didn't actually have access to secrets at that time, but they knew they were going to be part of the establishment. And then they use them as penetration agents. So if you can if you can recruit people or spot people who are heading into government and recruit them or know who they are, that's potentially very, very, very valuable. So that long game that the Russians could have played with the illegals if they hadn't been monitored or under control, I think suggests that they, you know, that they could have done real damage. I mean, Heathfield goes to the Kennedy School with the future president of Mexico. Exactly. Uh, some of the others are getting very close to the Hillary Clinton campaign, and this is... In 29 and 2010, yeah. she's going to be Secretary of State. She's going to be running for president. With all due respect to the current occupant of the White House, Anna Chapman, working in the New York real estate community, you can imagine <laughs> what direction she was heading yeah. in and how easily well, that would have been. Yeah, as I someone mean, said with Anna Chapman, is you could imagine her marrying a congressman. <laughs> you could imagine her marrying some influential person. Or, or, or Donald or, or, Trump. Oh. I mean, no, I mean, I, yeah, I'll say yeah. it. I mean, I mean, this yeah. is... She, she was that kind of a, like the yes a, a social butterfly yeah. and an attractive young woman and, and that there was potential there. yeah who was working the New York real estate market working. in the 2008 <laughs> yeah. 2009 I mean so, that's, yeah. Yeah. yeah so uh, you know you, you look at that and you go actually the, the potential there for, for long term serious damage was real I think from this group and the key of course is by by having their handler under control that meant they had all of them because it wasn't a situation I think a lot of people and you mentioned this in the book. A lot of people misinterpret the Russian ten as being like a ring. Yeah, who knew each other? Like yeah. who all, and they had no idea who each other were. The, no. the first time they probably found out of each other was when they all got arrested. Yeah, a couple of them had had, yeah. had brief contact, um, but a lot of them had never met each other before. So it's not like you could have rolled one up and then just and then had them the turn others. on yeah. everybody else. Yeah. You needed the leadership. Yeah, you case. needed to know to have a, a view of the whole program and what was going on. Yeah, and, a, and of course, some old-fashioned FBI work helps them to do this when they find this cachet. Of their tradecraft, like their communication yeah. system, yeah. which that's cock about an open door into what this, the Russians are uh, doing. And, and that's an amazing moment. I think it's 2005 where the FBI do a, a covert entry into the Murphy's house in New Jersey. And they're searching it, looking for anything uh, that, could, could, that, that could provide evidence of espionage. Because they're, they're still looking. Uh, they know at some point this might go to trial. So they want evidence, even though they know they're here. Um, and they find one box, a shoebox underneath the TV. And uh, uh, they end up calling it the Tradecraft Box because in it are some floppy disks. And it takes them a while to work out how to use these floppy disks. But eventually they realize, um, um, after a bit of trial and error, that uh, by inserting them and using a password, which fortunately is written down there, um, they can get inside the, the covert communication systems for the illegals. And it allows them to decrypt messages going back and forth. And again, just gives them that insight into and so it's an amazing operation because you know the FBI people will say that they you know they had their houses wired so they had mics all over the house they're obviously intercepting 
any communications. They're intercepting the communications back to Moscow. So they really know the lives of these people. They know they know what they're saying to Moscow Centre, but they also know what they're saying to each other. Right. <laughs> you know, about their relationship with Moscow Centre. Right, they, they talk there's about even it. a thing about fast forwarding it past the juicy parts. Being yeah. A professional. I did ask someone. Yeah, in, so, so I asked some of the FBI. I said, you know, well, how do you, you know, given you had their whole lives monitored and it's kind of suburban lives, what do you do with what I, I think called intimate moments? And they just said, you know, you skip forward professionally, you know, which you got to do. We'll be right back after this. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. I mean, they, they got to know them so well that the way that Chapman was kind of rounded up was a pretending an FBI agent pretending to be... Yeah, a false flag. Uh, uh, yeah. It was a false flag yeah. operation where they basically had an FBI agent pretend to be a Russian intelligence officer. And, and it worked. I mean, and it, she, well, yeah. yeah, although it, ne- it, it worked, but it came close right. because she... She, she, you know, she. Uh, this meeting was arranged. She meets someone she thinks is a Russian intelligence officer. He asks her to hand over something to someone else, which is a kind of trap, basically, to get the evidence of her actually doing something clandestine. But she seems to get suspicious about it, and so uh, she actually, um, you know, she she calls her dad. And the point is, her dad is a KGB, high-ranking high, high high KGB, yeah. and now SVR officer, uh, who says, "You know what? You know, you, what's going on?" Um, and interestingly enough, and, and but there's a, you know, a re- again, a really interesting moment where. The reason they're able to monitor that conversation, she actually gets a burner phone, and she uh, after the meeting she goes gets a burner phone, but she throws away the packaging into a into a trash can, and the FBI um, surveillance team are following her. They see it get thrown away. They pick it up. They work out what the number is, and then they get up on the phone and they hear the phone call. They know then she's uh, going to be uh, um, um, going to the police to kind of report it because that's what her dad suggests she do. And then they put an FBI team into the police station to pose as police officers and to basically detain her because I think one of the interesting bits of the story, they're not allowed to arrest her until uh, the Russian president leaves North American airspace because he's there for a summit and this is bang in the middle in 2010 of a reset of relations with Russia. And that really does nearly throw the whole 10-year investigation is the kind of politics the reset, and diplomacy the, fam- the, and the famous reset, reset. Button, yeah. and so that you know that the fbi is under absolutely strict orders do not arrest any of these illegals while the president of russia then dmitry medvedev is in north american airspace because it will be too much of an incident so they they have to basically stall anna chapman until he leaves and then the order goes in now you can now you can arrest her so it's kind of interesting i found it how the politics and the geopolitics of of Russian relations actually affected this very specific counterintelligence case. I mean, that's not the first time this has happened. I mean, you're talking about looking at money in the UK, uh, mm. certainly money in the United States has played a role in our, our yeah. politics with Russia, about how the corruption, mm. uh, where Russian oligarchs are going in and buying chairs at universities and, yeah. and buying basketball teams here in the United yeah. States and buying other things. Yeah. And that's where there is this kind of pushback, yeah, and on I, the political sense. And and I, I very much 
I think I try and document that in the UK when it comes to the reaction, for instance, to the uh, killing of Alexander Litvinenko in 2006 with, you know, and, and you look back and you think, um, you know, this is the post 9-11 era where everyone's kind of talking about WMD and nuclear, you know, weapons getting in the hands of terrorists. Well, here is the use of nuclear material, polonium, on the streets of London, leaving a trail of contamination, killing someone who'd become a British citizen, a former FSB officer, but still who'd become a British citizen. And what was the response? The response was feeble, you know. And part of the reason, I argue, is that because Russian influence was there and Russian money was there in London and there was a lot to lose and a whole kind of group of people had become quite rich off Russian money flooding into Britain, particularly in London, particularly from the 1990s. And that um, weakened the ability and the, the will to confront Russia, I think, at this time. Well, I mean, the Skripal response was better. It was. But not dramatic. I mean, essentially the fact that it was a... A, a chemical weapon, a nerve agent, yeah. used in broad daylight yeah. in London. Yeah, uh, in Salisbury, I, yeah. The, yeah. The first time a chemical weapon had been used since like World War One. Yeah. yeah, in in you know that it, Western Europe. That and it was t- it was tougher. But part of the reason why I think Russia thought, well, maybe we'll do this, is because the response to Litvinenko had been so weak. Right. And 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 if you look in 2018 after Skripal, there's an expulsion of diplomats. But actually, do they really crack down on the Russian money and influence? Mm, less sure about that. Yeah. So let's talk about the end. You talked about the, the arrest finally taking place. Mm. Um, there's been a lot of partial or incorrect, incorrect assumptions about this. Like mm. they were getting too close to Hillary's campaign. Mm. They, they picked up on surveillance and other things like that. Um, but it ends up being kind of what we were talking about before is nothing that was happening in the United States was the reason. It was what yeah. was actually happening in Russia. Yeah, and it goes back, again, they, 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 the real story about why the ghost stories investigation comes to an end had been deliberately partly obscured, I think, because of the fact it goes back to that sensitive issue of counterintelligence and the agent who was providing the intelligence uh, was uh, in Moscow, Alexander Pataev, and he was, he basically, uh, my understanding is, he became worried that, that the Russians were onto him, and there'd been some arrests of illegals, this important one in Estonia, and um, there was the concern in, in Russia, in Moscow, that there might be a mole, and so he felt he was under pressure and that they might get to him, and I think, you know, there's a realisation when someone starts to fear that, I think, you know, that's the moment when maybe it comes to an end, and so the decision was he needed to to get out and to, to 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 be taken out and that meant they if he's not there you no longer have that control right. which we talked about over over the illegals and therefore it was the moment to bring it to an end now actually that caused a headache for the white house because they were kind of like you're bringing us this you know and and, and obama himself president obama said you know you're bringing me this it's like you know have a carry novel i'm trying to improve relations with russia to deal with you know iran and start treaties and all these other things and you're bringing me a kind of spy story which has to come to an end now in the middle right. of this reset uh, uh, and that was certainly the the real reason and what really went on behind the scenes yeah i mean if you no longer have control you can't be sure how far people are getting and other yeah. things like that, too. One of the most compelling things about the TV show, The Americans, mm. was the conversations that the lead characters, Philip and Elizabeth, had about bringing Paige, their daughter, mm. into this. And so there has been that element with, with this story as well, where there's a back and forth about one of the kids, at least, uh, Timothy, maybe knowing, maybe not knowing. Mm. Um, where do you stand on that? <laughs> um, and really, I wonder about the the poor Murphy girls. Yeah. Is there, I mean, this has now been a decade. Yeah. So they are now in twenties, yeah, they're, they're right? In their in early twenties. Yeah. So yeah. I mean, it, it, the kids are, are are the bit which you find fascinating about this because, uh, I, I mean, these are kids who'd been brought up 
thinking they were one thing and then one day finding they were not. You're not an American or a Canadian. Your parents are Russians and they're Russian spies. And, you know, for the Murphy girls, you know, they were kind of, you know, 11 or so at the time, one of them. And, uh, you know, she comes back from a pool party on a Sunday night and the FBI are in her house and she's told her parents are Russian spies and two weeks later she's in Moscow. I mean, you know, you thought you were an American kid living in the right. New Jersey suburbs and then that's that's the reality of it. So, you know, the, the kind of... The, the human kind of impact of that is amazing. Uh, uh, the issue about whether any of them were brought into the program is a really interesting one. There's some historic cases where it looks like illegals did bring their children into the program and uh, talked about it. And certainly there was this, you know, if you talk to the FBI agents who, who monitored them, they, they could hear the illegals having this dilemma, which is what do you do about your kids? You can't tell them when they're too young or they'll blurt it out at school. You know, right. mum m- m- and daddy are Russian spies. But if you leave it too late, then... What if they really become Americans and they become... And so they actually brought them up in a kind of interesting way with the, the Foley kids, uh, uh, Donald Heathfield and Anne Foley, where they deliberately brought them up in the most international way they could. They made them travel a lot. They sent to international schools, partly because I think they, they didn't want them to become too American. But yes, there is this um, question about the elder of the, the two boys, Tim Foley, and he has always denied it. Um, but some of the documents have suggested that he was made aware of his parents' role. And there was some kind of, in the Canadian documentation, it said that he swore some kind of oath, um, uh, whether it's of secrecy or loyalty, it's unclear. But he's always denied that and said, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's as, as crazy as it sounds. Hard to, hard to, to make a definitive judgment. Well, I mean, what do you that. want to turn his parents in? I mean, again, yeah. I, I can't imagine that. This isn't the height of the Cold War where you'd be like those commie bastards. This is, yeah. this is the 2000 aughts where th- we think you know George Bush looks into Putin's soul and yeah. finds a kindred spirit, and we're not yet you know post 2016. He might just be like, well, so it's my parents, <laughs> yeah, right? I mean, yeah. I'm not going to turn my I, parents in. Yeah, I, you you kind of think what a yeah what dilemmas they they faced, and because they, he and his brother have tried to go back into Canada yeah. several times, and they've and, been they've been fighting which i think they've pretty much won you know kind of long-range legal battles to try and get their canadian citizenship because they kind of said you know don't really feel russian you can kind of understand that and they felt slightly kind of you know lost where is your identity you know who are you i mean they even lost their kind of names they had to change their names so you don't even have your your real name anymore um when finding out your real name wasn't your real name all along because it was something else is there any update about the Murphy girls? They, uh, they're, they're, I, I'm aware of where one is, and uh, I think she, you know, I think in a way, understandably, they want to put their past behind them. And you do think they were young, they had no idea. Right. And I think it's understandable for them that you, that they, they, they don't want to discuss, right. you know, what, <laughs> what happened. And they want to kind of create new lives, I think, you know. The Murphy house actually came up for sale about a year and a half mm, ago, I and, that, and yeah. I was like, ooh. <laughs> Tempted. You know, I mean, it was to a degree. It was one of these, like, I don't know why I'd spend $100,000 on an artifact that's a house, but, but, but yeah, it's, it's kind, kind of interesting. You know, if you're interested yeah. in this stuff, it's kind of cool. <laughs> what, what, what kind of finalizes the story is the spy swap yeah. that takes place at the end of it, and, it, and it's somewhat... Un- it's unprecedented not that there were 10 people traded for four mm. because actually the most recent spy swap with the Cubans mm-hmm. was similar in the fact that we traded more of them for us. It was, in this case, we weren't getting back our people. We were actually getting back Russians. Yeah. 
because that's not how these normally work no. out, right? Exactly. Normally in the Cold War, you get a kind of Western intelligence officer or businessman who's been arrested in Moscow, traded for the, the you know, a, a Russian or a Soviet spy Wait, in the West. Francis Gary Powers exactly. being traded yeah. for Ralph Abel, right? Yeah. Um, uh, but this was different because basically the U.S. had the upper hand. You know, you've got 10 illegals who are highly prized, highly valued they're intelligence officers, you know, and precisely they're illegals because they do not have diplomatic immunity. They don't have legal cover. So they are prosecutable. You know, you can, if that's the word, you can, you know, you can, you can send them to jail for a long time. So the Russians had to get them back. So that gave the U.S. huge leverage, basically, to get what it wanted. So it could ask for something which you wouldn't normally get back, which were people the Russians viewed as traitors, their own citizens who were accused of spying for the West, for people. Now, those are not normally people the Russians would ever want to release. Well, that's I, I, I knew it, who we got, but I hadn't equated it to the fact that that would be like us releasing Ames and, and Hansen back exactly. to the Russians. And actually, interesting enough, the, the, the Russians had, had offered to, to, had asked to kind of swap um, um, Ames to get him out. And you could imagine, you know, would, would the US feel comfortable, you know, letting, letting Aldrich James go and live a nice life in Russia? And the answer is no. But actually, the US is in a strong enough position in 2010 to get the equivalents in their minds, you know, out of, um, out, out of Moscow. And I think that's important because so it, it, because it, it did, you know, one of the things I kind of write about is, is it did, it did create real anger for Putin personally, you know, Putin's a former KGB officer. He sees intelli- he sees his spies as heroes, and he's made them heroes, and he's made enemy spies villains, and he's built a reputation on restoring Russia after humiliation. And so suddenly, to have to exchange Russians for Russians and to give up, you know, um, these people was, I think, a humiliation and made him angry in a way which we didn't really appreciate, I think, at the time. And, you know, someone told me he threw his papers up in the air when he learnt about it. And I think that also then explains why, um, you know, where some of the anger comes from, which leads to a desire for revenge, frankly. Well, one of the, one of the Russians traded back to the West was... Sergei Skripal, yeah. And the, but that, that, that's... The rules had always been... Yeah. Well, the rule had always been don't kill people yeah really i mean that's that's if you look at you know our former director here peter Ernest, 36 years at cia in operations never carried a gun mm-hmm. right the good old days the the gentleman's agreement about spies not bumping each other off was just understood unless you were in a war zone or somewhere else so you weren't bumping people off in broad daylight maybe you killed a journalist in moscow mm-hmm. but you weren't killing people in london or yeah. washington so that was after litvinenko that had been loosened a little bit yeah. that was re- close enough to script all that it it was still a shock when that happened. Yeah. The bigger shock, though, was that once you agree to trade somebody, mm-hmm. they're supposed to be, like, as off-limits as it gets, yeah. right? Like, we're well, supposed to protect them from getting hit by a bus, right? Yeah. You know, to make yeah. sure that they live, because that's the deal. That, yeah. And, I mean, I, I, I asked uh, at a public event, I asked the, the, the current chief of MI6, uh, Alex Younger, about this. And I said, you know, um, you know could, should, shouldn't you have done more to protect Scripps? Uh, and his his answer was something along the lines of, you know, we thought we made an assumption that someone who had been swapped and pardoned 
would not be at risk. We won't make that assumption again. Yeah, but I mean, in the movies, the retaliation would have been we would have killed all ten of the Russian ten. Yeah, right. I mean, that that would have been yeah. that, that's that's the equivalent, right? It's, it's, yeah. it's killing in a Chapman. Yeah, yeah. And, Which I mean, is kind of inconceivable. Right. Well, of course, that? we're not yeah. going to do that. that. That's kind of where <laughs> this comes out of yeah. left field. Uh, and and what that tells you, I think, is quite a lot about Russia and Russia under Putin. It tells you that um, the desire for revenge runs deep that the humiliation of 2010 was important and significant enough to take that risk, and that he has unleashed his spy services to do things and take risks which were not conceivable before. Well, I mean, Litvinenko didn't even, he wasn't even spying. He was just kind yeah. of pissed him off, yeah. right, by kind of signing on to yeah. this idea that, that Putin had bombed the apartments yeah. um, to, to force the Second Chechnyan War and yeah. all that stuff. This is going to be a problem moving in the future because... There's actually a new philosophy behind the illegal program, or at least it looks mm -hmm. like a changing philosophy, of technology allowing for a lot less training. Yeah. So much in the same way we're worried about the Chinese just uh, like flooding foreign officers inside. The Russians now don't need to do a decade worth of training no. for illegals. They can just send people in Yeah. because technology prevents you from needing to spend so much time learning the tradecraft. And that was one of the things I found really interesting in the book was in writing the book was the evolution of Russian um, kind of tradecraft and thinking when it came to illegals. So you go from these family illegals, as they're called, you know, deep cover decades of, uh, of of work on their cover and training. Then the next stage is the kind of Anna Chapman stage, which is she's what they call a true name or special agent illegal. Remember, she's not hiding the fact she's Russian. Um, so which gets you around some of the problems of cover and biometrics because she's using her, effectively her real identity. But she's more similar in some ways to a kind of, a, a, you know, a knock and non-official cover. But that's the next stage, which you can start to see and which is quite effective and which they can use because there's increased flows of young people and you know students to the West. Then, but then you have the, a kind of the next stage, which after that is you can have you can have what I kind of call cyber illegals, which are basically entirely fake people. You can manufacture an identity, right. you know, rather than taking 10 years, you can manufacture an online identity, which is cheap and disposable and certainly limited in what you can do, but you can do it in seconds on the internet. That's using technology in a new way. And you can use co-optees. So you can, you can approach some of the Russians in the West and you can say to them, uh, we think you're in an interesting place. We'd like you to do some work for us. So again, not training, not an official intelligence officer, you can, you know, the links are looser, the investment is, is, is lighter, but there's plenty of opportunities there. So you can see the shifts in Russian espionage over the decades of the way they think about and use illegals. It's not static. And that makes counterintelligence that much more difficult because you have someone like Maria Butina, mm -hmm. who she could have been sent over here on purpose, mm. or she could have been someone where the Russians said, oh man, she worked her way up pretty high yeah. in this whole gun rights lobby. And, She's know, useful, yeah. Right, and, 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 and you, you, people like that don't even have to necessarily know that they are working for Russian intelligence because you can, you can have a cutout through an oligarch. And so you can have oligarchs and the Russian businessmen who have all kinds of influence in the West and the ability to travel and move around the West. Uh, and, and people can be working for them who can then be tasked and used indirectly by Russian intelligence. So it's a much harder picture. And of course, that's much harder for the FBI, for Britain's MI5 to monitor, because it's not like the old days where you've just got, you know, the Russians in the embassy you need to worry about, and maybe some illegals. You've got a lot, um, a greater kind of fluidity of, of the way Russia works. And it's, and it's much more, it's occasionally a bit looser, and it's not always as professional, and the tradecraft isn't always as good as it used to be with those kind of well-trained officers and illegals. But it is also has different challenges in trying to spot them because you've got to work out who they are. Right.
Well, the, I mean, sometimes in the case of like Butina, if you can't prove that she was an, uh, actually an agent of a foreign government, she's broken no laws. Yeah. Right. She's just batting her eyelashes and, you know, being pretty and yeah. trying to push this gun rights legislation. She's technically not done anything illegal. And I think that's the other interesting transition is you see more and more that it's not always about stealing secrets. It's sometimes about influence. Right. It's about knowing people. It's about being able to influence things. And again, that's, as you say, it's kind of harder to prosecute because it's not the same as, hey, I've got a classified document which I've got from someone. It's people moving in political circles or financial circles and able to influence things in a way Russia wants or feedback information on who's up and who's down. And and that, that is harder to prosecute under the traditional system. Although in the US you have a kind of Foreign Agent Registration Act, which they can use, which I think the UK is currently looking at something similar because they're aware they don't have the tools to really deal with these kind of influence. Uh, That's agents. the only thing they got some of the Russian 10 on, basically, yeah. was you couldn't prove that they were actually committing espionage, but you could commit that they were in the country working. Yeah, without, without having, having registered. Yeah. And of course, no one's going to ever register themselves <laughs> as, as an SBR a, I am a, I am a spy. <laughs> let, me, let me go down to the office and register yeah. myself. Well, I, mean, I guess the, the people with official cover sometimes might. do that if they're... <laughs> yeah. Well, the, the station chiefs might announce themselves. The declared yeah, liaison declare officers, yeah. Um, let me ask you one big philosophical question mm -hmm. to wrap this all up. Um, was there any pushback about this book? And the reason I'm asking that question is it almost seems like in the United States we're entering a second period of McCarthyite backlash. And the fact that, you know, the story of General uh, of Joseph McCarthy, who was accidentally correct that there were spies all over the place, but because he pushed so hard and he demonized so many people mm -hmm. and he was such a notorious asshole people said oh anytime you brought up something of russian spying you're being a mccarthyite mm. or you're being you know you're, you're being heavy-handed you're you're falling into this trap mm. of this demagogue yeah i see that repeating itself a lot right where the yeah. idea is if you even bring up the idea of russian influence to anyone uh who is um you know ironically right of center right the mm. republican party that that then all of a sudden you hate Trump and you're, you're bashing the yeah. president and there's no real Russian spying here. You're only doing that because you don't like the fact that Trump won the presidency. Yeah. And it seems as though it's very difficult. And I, I, I pity uh, to a degree, I, I guess I sympathize with the FBI and others who are trying to do this because they could drop a massive espionage case on the president's desk and have no idea where it's going to go. I think you're right that the, the, the issue of Russia has become politicized and polarized in a way that perhaps you know no one would have predicted a few years ago so i think that is certainly a challenge and i definitely think there is the need to be kind of clear-headed about it um and to have kind of balanced information and one of the things i try and say in the book is i think we've got to be careful about not making the russians out to be 10 foot tall and everywhere either because they're not they're not all powerful they're not they can often be sloppy they can get things wrong but they are there and i think having that measured approach is really important at this moment when it does become politicized and polarized you know and it's interesting one of the reasons i kind of subtitled the book ghost stories it, it, you know the ghost stories was the name of the fbi investigation it's to do with the kind of ghosts of spies past but there's also this sense in which sometimes you see ghosts which aren't there and there is a risk sometimes of becoming almost hyper aware mm. of, of, of russia uh and i think we have to be you know there are other national security threats as well um but we do need a kind of clear-headed appreciation of it which doesn't um go to the extremes either way and i i you know that's one of the things i i hope i kind of focused on in the book rather than coming at it with a particular agenda right 
I, 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 the book is fascinating for anyone who wants to focus on the history of this and just ignore the politics. Uh, it tells an ex- extraordinary story. Again, you're right, for the first time ever Paul put together. Right, there have been bits and pieces of this certainly told through journalistic articles, but for the first time, this is being all put together in one place. The title is Russians Among Us, Sleeper Cells, Ghost Stories, and the Hunt for Putin Spies. The author, Gordon Carrera. We appreciate you taking the time to talk to us here at SpyCast. Thank you very much for having me. The International Spy Museum is a full 501c3 nonprofit. If you want to donate to the museum, or if you're local and want to volunteer at the museum, please visit our website at spymuseum.org for more information. Hey all, Rick here. At N2K CyberWire, we're dedicated to continuously improving the quality of the news and commentary on our network. That's why we're inviting you to participate in our 2024 audience survey. It only takes a few minutes and your feedback is invaluable. Plus, you'll have the chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card as a thank you for your time. Head on over to cyberwire.com slash survey. That's cyberwire.com slash survey to share your feedback now.